0: Music is indeed a wonderful gift, and thank you, Ruth Ann and choir, for that beautiful anthem. It's good to be with you today. I have preached here at St. Luke a couple of times before over over the past few years, and it's good to be back with you. In fact, our family uh, worshiped with you on Christmas Eve at, in the afternoon service because Well, we hadn't seen Bruce since he moved back up to Jackson from Hattiesburg, and I was his district superintendent when he was at Court Street there in Hattiesburg, and wanted to see him and the family, and and it worked out better time-wise for us as well, but it's good to be with you today. Uh, One thing to discover about John's gospel, John has a way of blending together events leading up to the resurrection and and events after the resurrection, themes and thoughts, and, and so this particular text is this filled with images and ideas and themes but I want to call your attention to to one in particular here when when Philip says Lord show us the father that will be enough for us and Jesus replied don't you know me Philip even after I've been with you all this time whoever has seen me has seen the father Many of you are probably familiar with Solomon's Head of Christ. You may not know that it was Solomon who painted the, the image, but you may have seen it over the years. I know when I was growing up in the 50s, uh, there was a Solomon's Head of Christ in every elementary Sunday school classroom at West Park Methodist Church. So you couldn't miss it, and and I've been at a lot of churches throughout Mississippi with my work on the foundation, on the district, and serving other congregations, and, and I often see Solomon's head of Christ. Sometimes it's in a hallway, sometimes it's in a fellowship hall, sometimes it's in the North X. and. And in many uh, rural congregations, it's hanging in the chancellery instead of a cross there. There's Solomon's head of Christ, usually in a nice frame with a light over it, and you turn the light on during the worship service. But Solomon painted this image in 1940. And he said he wanted to present and produce a more manly Christ. And if you've seen it, you would remember it because you have Jesus kind of looking up, and he has a beautifully combed hair and beautifully combed beard. And he's kind of looking up like that. And and something I noticed in research about the the painting is is that there's an image on Jesus's forehead, on Christ's forehead, that's kind of round. And people say, well, that's an image of the host, the bread of communion. And then if you look closely on the side of the head, there's an image of a chalice there. So you have the image of the bread and the cup there on Solomon's head of Christ. It's a ubiquitous image. It's been produced over 500 million times. So I'm sure you may have seen it somewhere along the way. But we've got to remind ourselves that nobody knows exactly what Jesus looked like because, well, after all, we do know that he was a a first-century Palestinian Jew, which meant he was probably fairly short, dark of skin, and had dark eyes and very dark hair. Hair, Not quite anything like Jeffrey Hunter's portrayal of Jesus in the epic movie, King of Kings, because he was blonde hair and blue eyes. That's not quite, I don't think, what Jesus looks like. But I think there is a way for us, a tendency for us to see Jesus through our own eyes and to see Jesus as we see ourselves in some ways physically. And there's a wonderful painting that I've seen where it has all kinds of of faces of Jesus from all kinds of cultures and and societies around the world. But, But when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he wasn't really talking about the physical presence of himself there. He was speaking of the very nature and character of God, is what Jesus was saying to the disciples in this text, that if you have seen me, Jesus, you, in my character and in my actions and in my very being, you have seen the Father. And we see that play down in, in John's gospel in, in a number of instances in which we begin with Jesus turning water into wine at the Cana a Wedding at Cana of Galilee, and, and we see that, that Jesus Provides more than anybody could ask for and and a generosity that goes well above and beyond because they've run out of wine at the wedding feast and they need a little bit more. What Jesus does is produce gallons more of wine and and he just doesn't give them the the cheap end stuff but he gives them the best wine they've ever tasted. This generosity that goes above and beyond and in this we see the embodiment of a father who, who is generous above of and beyond anything we seek and ask. And then in John's gospel, he kind of does things a little different than the other gospels. And immediately, Jesus goes to worship at the Passover. And the first thing that he does, that he gets into the temple precincts, he overturns the money changer tables. And he drives out those who are selling pigeons and doves with a whip of cords. He's unhappy and he says, you shall not make my fathers a a den house, a den of robbers, but it is to be a place of prayer and worship. And I believe what Jesus is saying here that, that God doesn't want us to place any barriers in the way of people coming to worship. Because this was a system in Jesus' day that preyed upon the poorest of the poor. These were the people who had to use pigeons and doves because they couldn't afford anything else and they didn't have anything at home to bring to offer and and they would have to buy them at usurious prices. And then they would bring their few little coins to make an offering to God in God's house and, and they had to convert their coins with Roman images to coins without any images and at a useless rate as well. And that's why Jesus was angry because the system was keeping the poorest of the poor out of worship and discouraging the worship and making it difficult for them to worship. And we think, well, how could the religious leaders of the day do such a thing? But but it's kind of interesting that if you look at the history of the Protestant church in America, They did something simpler because in the 19th century, most Protestant churches raised their money by renting pews. The pews were rented in the churches to raise funds. And the wealthiest people got the best pews, which were down front, and it kind of went down from there. So you could see the social pecking order of the day in a church because the wealthy would be up front and then it would kind of go from there. And, oh, yes, they would reserve a few seats up in the balcony up there for the poorest of the poor to sit and for slaves to sit. But you kind of got the idea, well, you have a place, but you're not really that welcome. Now I'd say today, kind of tongue in cheek, that we would kind of reverse that order, that we want the wealthiest would want the back pews and then it would kind of go down from there toward the front. But but this was a practice that continued throughout the nineteenth century and even into the very turn of the twentieth century, believe it or not. And there was a whole denomination that split off of the Methodist movement, the Methodist Protestants who were uh, objected to this idea of excluding the poor from worship and having to pay uh, a fee to sit in worship, and they were also anti-slavery as well, and when the Methodist Protestants and the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South came back together in 1939 there was written in the book of discipline and you can find this even today under the duties of the board of trustees there is language that says the pews shall be free you can't rent the pews any longer but that was one way that that the church raised its money, and Jesus was upset because it was a system that had been in place for the Jewish leaders that, that prevented people from having access to worship. And then immediately, you know, John moves people along pretty well, that Jesus has a conversation with the woman at the well. You probably remember that story pretty well, where, where she was a Samaritan woman in the, the territory of the Samaritans. And, and the Jews believed that the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were people who had been left behind at the exile and they'd intermarried with the people in the land who weren't Jewish and they kinda gotten off track about their understanding of the scriptures and where God was to be worshiped and all that sort of thing. And so they were excluded from the Jewish body. And if you were going down from Galilee to Jerusalem you would have to go miles out of your way to avoid Samaria. And most Jews would do that lest they become tainted and unclean by by being in the Samaritan territory. And yet here Jesus goes to Samaria, and not only goes to Samaria, but he goes to speak to a woman who's drawing water at a well in the community. And again, Jewish males did not speak to women in public it wasn't done you just didn't do that and they sure wouldn't speak to this kind of woman a woman that we discover has been married 5 times and now living with someone with whom is not her husband and yet that's who Jesus goes to and not only does Jesus go to this woman but he goes and he offers us offers her the very water He gives to her, offers to her the very gift of salvation, and she goes forth and begins to reclaim the good news to others that i met this man who's told me everything I've ever done and who's given me the gift of everlasting life. Jesus breaks through the cultural boundaries and barriers that society of his day had erected saying, these are the people who are inside and these are the people who are outside the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The kingdom of God is so much broader than anything you could possibly think and muster in your mind. The nature of God. And then Jesus goes, and he's observing what's going on there in Jerusalem at the Pool of Bethesda. And it's a place that, supposedly, when the water is stirred, someone could touch it and be healed. And, And he comes across a man who's a paralytic, and he's been sitting there for 38 years, dependent upon the care of others to give him some food, to eat and some water to drink at least they had taken care of those basic needs for him for 38 years and Jesus says to him what do you want and the man says well I want to be healed and so Jesus says what he says take up your bed and walk and immediately the man rises up picks up his bed and starts walking away filled with joy and excitement. You think the religious rulers of the day would be all excited to see this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, who's been healed and restored to life and, and praise God for what has happened. Nope. They're very unhappy, in fact. They're unhappy because Jesus had dared to do this on the Sabbath day. Dared to do it on the Sabbath day. And there were rules about that day. Well, the Ten Commandments said, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But, but, you know, over time, people had to start kind of explaining, well, what did that really mean? How did you keep it holy? And so they come up a whole long list of rules about the Sabbath and how many steps one could take on the Sabbath day without working, how much you could care for your livestock without working. They even got it down to the point where you could keep someone who's ill in the same condition, but you couldn't make them better because if you did, that was to do work. And you definitely couldn't go picking up and walking around with your bed under your arm because that would have been work. So they were more concerned about the the oral laws surrounding the Sabbath day than they were about the healing of this man. And we think, how could they be like that? But then think about this. You know, I grew up in the 50s and early 60s, and we had this thing called blue laws. Anybody remember blue laws? Yeah, blue laws, where in a community they they told you what you could and couldn't do on Sunday. It wasn't the Sabbath, but on our Sundays, because Christians did not. Uh, controlled everything at that time. And the whole idea was, well, you couldn't have stores open on Sunday because it would interfere with going to church. You couldn't have school activities on Sunday because it would interfere with going to church. You couldn't have movies before noon because that would interfere with going to church. And there was a whole list of things you couldn't do on Sunday according to the blue laws. And so, you know, we've done some of those same sorts of things, but Jesus says, no, you got it wrong that the Sabbath is a gift for humanity, that we humans were not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was a gift from a loving and caring God who said, you need some time off. You need some time for rest. You need some time for recreation. You need time for renewal. It's a gift from a loving God. And the religious leaders have gotten it kind of reversed and, and misunderstood the whole thing. And then we have the story that appears in all the Gospels where Jesus feeds a multitude. He gives them food to eat, and he does it in superabundance. He gives them more than they could ever hope and ask for, as, as a reminder of the manna from heaven that God provided during the Exodus experience. But, but then there's a little more to the story that, that the very next day, Jesus has gone a, around the, the Sea of Galilee to the other side to kind of get away from the crowds. And what they do? They came and found him, didn't they? They came looking for Jesus because they wanted more, they wanted more bread to eat. They wanted more fish to eat. They wanted something that would satisfy and fill their bellies. And and what does Jesus say? Well, God wants to provide for you your basic needs, but God wants to give you so much more. That God has sent me to give you my very self in body and blood so that you may have life everlasting. Empty place in your spirit, that empty place in your soul would be filled and, and you would be satisfied and never hunger like that again for, for something that, that you're looking for and longing for that you may not even realize what it is. But but God wants to fill that emptiness in you with grace and love and with peace. That is the gift that God has for you don't overlook it. And we could go on and on with the stories in the Gospel of John about all of this, but, but this is what Jesus means when he says to Philip and the other disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This is who God is. This is how God works in our world. This is the very nature and the very character of God the God who wants to free you for worship and for life and be with you and embrace you for all eternity. Solomon has another image that some of you may have noticed somewhere in print, not nearly as as commonplace as the head of Christ, but it's one that depicts Jesus standing at a door And Jesus is there knocking on the door. And the door is closed. There's a little grate there in the middle where you can kind of see in and see out. But the interesting thing about this door is is there's no latch on the outside. There's no latch on the outside telling us that that Jesus isn't going to just open the door and barge right in and and. And enter our lives uninvited, but that Jesus, in the very nature and character of God, persistently knocks at the door, longingly knocks at the door, longing for us to open that door and to invite him in, that he may feast and fellowship with us for all eternity. God longs for us. God longs to be with us. And God doesn't want anything to stand in the way of having a relationship with him. Because God is a God who keeps seeking. A God is the God who keeps longing. God is the God who keeps persistently knocking there at the door. Hoping. That will open it and allow Him to come in and be in our lives forever. Because all are invited, all are accepted into God's love and God's grace. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for your word for us this day. Through the power of your spirit, we trust that you would speak the word that is needed among your hearers this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.